everybody. This is Charles Hain. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of May 9th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID Week 8. I don't know how long I'm going to keep telling you guys what week of COVID lockdown it is, but I'm just going to keep going. Uh, I'm Charles Hain, No Film School writer and filmmaker, and uh, I'm here with No Film School uh, editor-in-chief and filmmaker George Edelman. Hello. And filmmaker and No Film School writer Michelle De La Tour. I also do not know what week it is. We are talking about Netflix's restarting production around the globe. We're going to be talking about the moral quandary of making a documentary produced by the person you're documenting. We have two quick tech news stories for you this week. Frame.io rolls out a feature they've been working on for a while early. And Mac has a 13-inch MacBook Pro improvement that is actually interesting to filmmakers. All that and a deep cuts this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, so our first story this week uh, I don't know about all of you guys, but I am in like a dozen different groups. I'm like working on an inner film school group. I'm trying to get the UFEA to do, uh, talking, I'm talking to people at the UFEA about a group. I'm on a Facebook group called reopening Hollywood. Like all half of my life is talking about is like, what is production going to look like when we're back? And of course we know Denmark and Sweden are allowing shoots right now, but Netflix has announced that they're going to start relaunching some of their international shoots in South Korea. Iceland and Sweden. And they have shows that shoot in all those places. Netflix is a very large international marketplace. They've, especially in the last five years or so, really been launching a lot of international shows. And they are restarting production basically immediately in these three countries. And there's sort of a lot of I mean, I have to say, honestly, all eyes are on them, I think. So, you know, I have two friends who have productions that are supposed to go this summer that still expect that they're going to be shooting and they're figuring, you know, they're having conversations like, what country do we even shoot in? Like, are we shooting in America? Are we shooting in Israel? Are we shooting in Morocco? Like, you know, there are all these kind of conversations. And as Netflix restarts production, I think there's a lot of people who are like, all right, so what are you actually doing? Because one of the interesting things, if you've been paying attention to this, is the Nordic country put their guidelines online on a website called The Nordics, which is really nice of them. And, you know, a, lot, a bunch of production companies have put out guidelines like Smuggler and Lionsgate's guidelines just came out this week. Uh, I'm a big union fan. And the unions are are really the place, the unions and the guilds, the DGA, SAG, um, you know, but also Local 600, Cinematographers, Local 700, the Posties, like, uh, you know, here in New York, Local 52, uh, the Mechanics, which include gaffers, and like the people who are actually working on set. Because a lot of the guidelines we've seen so far are sort of high-end guidelines. They're from a film commission, they're from executives, but they're not actually dealing with a lot of the nitty-gritty of how a movie gets made, and we don't have our union guidelines yet. The unions are working on them. They've they've said that they're going to be coming soon. Steven Soderbergh's obviously heading up the DGA effort, but they're being careful. I think a lot of people are going to be paying attention to, like, what are... What are you actually doing, Netflix? Like, how is this actually working? Are you, you know, South Korea, they're going to be testing. um, Lots of temperature taking. Lots of temperature taking. But what's interesting is the rules are different in every country and Netflix is doing different things in every country. So it will work as kind of an interesting test. So, for instance, uh, South Korea has lots of tests available. Uh, Sweden, very few tests are available. So they're not going to be doing a lot of regular tests unless someone has symptoms. I think Sweden has a quarantine for two weeks in advance rule. Is that yes. is that right? Yeah. Yes. I thought that was an interesting one because I was like, oh, it'll be interesting to see how that works compared to like just testing a lot. 
Well, but also that's a gamble, right? Because that means, all right, we're going to lock everybody in a hotel for two weeks before we shoot. But what happens if someone comes down sick on week 14? You're assuming at that point that that person has been locked in a hotel with everyone else on the cast and the crew. So at that point, the entire cast and crew is out. So do you recast and recruit your entire show or is the show just over? I assume and I think that you have to have extremely strict guidelines and rules for interactivity throughout. So during the quarantine, everyone is isolated from each other. It's literally two weeks with no human contact at all. I was assuming it was like we're in prep and we're quarantining while we're in prep. Yeah, I mean, quarantining and prep, but then yes, that. But I think then when you're on set, you have to be, I would assume that productions will have a lot of guidelines in place for interacting with other people in the crew just to make sure that if someone does get it in the middle, like somehow there's a limit to how many people they had contact with. Like maybe only if your hair and makeup, you'd had contact. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think they're going to be, I don't think people are going to be encouraged to sit near each other at lunch. (laughs) This is, you know what I mean? (laughs) Like social distancing is going to happen on set as much as it possibly can. I don't know. I'm really nervous about this because I feel like once you get on set, There's that energy to set. There's that habit of set. There's that like, you know, and like people are always interacting with each other. Like, uh, you know, you keep hearing these interviews with people who are like running a factory and they're like, all right, now every team on the factory is going in and out a separate door. And, you know, we staggered all the lunch schedules and that's really easy to do. And sets are so different and it's so hard for me to imagine what it's going to be like. And I know like there's that energy on set where I can just totally imagine people like for the first three days being really good and like everyone's wearing the mask and everyone's six feet apart and everyone's like, I'm going to put this thing down and walk away and then you're going to pick it up. And then on like day four, somebody's just going to be like, fuck it and hand someone else a cable and it's going to fall apart so quickly. I don't know. I think we're going to need some sort of dedicated, uh, and it won't be the medic, but I think we're going to need a dedicated public safety off, like a public health safety officer. Who's like the person that we all know who's in charge, who has no other job, who's like making sure people are wearing their masks and have supplies on masks and gloves are getting changed regularly. And like, there's going to need to be like the health steward. And you know what I just realized when, when you say that, what I start thinking about is how hard it'll be on indie productions, just like things where you're, where you have like a, you know, fire watch where you have like safety on set or you have to pay like a cop to be there, like to qualify for a permit or to qualify, like there's going to be a necessity to pay a person to be there all day with a full supply, like exactly what you're talking about of gloves and blah, blah, blah. And that it's going to be like the new, yeah, it's going to be a whole thing. It's going to be like a, what do they call it? Studio, you know, the teachers when you have kids on set. Studio teacher. Right. Studio teacher. Yes. But the danger, I think, is that I think a lot of people are thinking, well, you know, because like there's the set safety captain, right? And everybody knows that the first AD and the first AD is in charge of set safety and whatever. And I think there's going to be this hope of like, oh, well, let's not hire an extra person for this. Let's just give this job to like, all right, now this is the second AD job. And I honestly think it really needs to be an independent person. But then think about the rest of the of the pyramid of, of productions that exist. And there's going to be some or maybe many that think, well, we can't afford that. We're just trying to make a movie here. Like we can't afford having the safety person. Do you know what I mean? And so there's going to be these decisions are made and there's going to be rogue, just like people, you know, steal shots all the time 
or go without, you know, do things without permits, et cetera. So I see like uh, there's going to be a difference between what's happening at the safest level and then there's going to be people who are doing things not so safe because they just want to go out and shoot their short, you know? I have kind of, I feel like I have kind of a rogue take on this, all of this, which is I think it might be time for us to stop saying when can we go back and we should be saying something like what do we have the opportunity to change now that we've paused, right? Yes. So things mm, like cleanliness really will change, right? But now we have the time to implement things that we weren't implementing before, things we didn't have before, roles, unions, whatever it was. Now we're paused. might be a good time to rethink what do we have on set, what do we want on set, what can we change going forward, what kind of – everything. Uh, it's such a, it's a great point. I heard about – Food service now. Everybody's required to wear gloves, like prepping food. How was that not a rule? Yeah, exactly. Already? How was that not a rule all this time? I mean, I know it wasn't, and I know we're all fine. But like, shouldn't that have been a rule forever? I think, and and I. This is kind of. Have you guys ever had to read Who Moved My Cheese? Have you ever yes, had to I read? got, I got yeah. given that book in high school, and I didn't know any better, and I read it. No, <laughs> exactly. I don't know. Please. Who, who moved my cheese is a at, at face value. And Charles, you may interrupt at, and share your expertise at any moment as well about who moved my cheese. But the, at face value, <laughs> I love the title. It, it is about two mice who go to find their daily lunch of cheese. And one day the cheese moves. And one of the mice says, one mouse says, great, I'm going to go find cheese elsewhere. And one mouse says, no, I'm going to like, it's going to come back and <laughs> it's going to come back in the same place. It's just, it wasn't there this time. And the whole, pre- the whole, the whole premise of the book is a very simple story to say that people should be finding new cheese. And this is a new cheese moment. This is a, a, this might be a time where we may, it may not come back in the same way. And that might be, I don't know if it might be okay. I don't, I don't want to say that out loud because I think that there are, there are real, you know, there are real jobs and real sets and things that are dependent on the way that things were. There were also real jobs and real sets that could not ever existed in the way that it was. And maybe now is a time for us to kind of think about what we want to change going forward and follow cheese. I love that so much. I love that who moved my cheese story. I think the implications are obviously like much bigger and broader. And and sometimes I think the entire United States economy is in a who moved my cheese state. And I don't want to get into that, but I but it, it doesn't it feel like I mean, you're right. Like this whole thing is a this the tragedy may be unavoidable. It's like some things about this may be different forever, and they may really, really hurt people, certain people's livelihoods, and that's terrible. But there may not be it may not be coming back to the same spot. That cheese may be gone. I get really frustrated by certain things in America because I'm like, for me, the fundamental promise of America was that we all fled Europe or we got dragged here against our will or we fled Asia or we fled South America. But like the idea with America is that you were supposed to show up and follow where opportunity led you. Like that was the idea. And so when, you know, like I think it is transition is tough. One industry dying is tough and a new industry starting is tough. And I admit that, but like, aren't we supposed to be excited about that? Like, I just find the idea that like we keep propping up all of these dying industries with like subsidies to be ridiculous. Cause I'm like, it's like, looking back at horse carriages in the 1880s and being like, well, you know, cars are coming in, but we need to keep propping up the horse carriage makers. And it's like, no, the horse carriage makers should just go make cars. 
like that's the like the idea. And like I think that this is a big opportunity where some industries are maybe going to go by the wayside. Like oil being negative thirty dollars a barrel for a day last uh, month is a yeah. big indicator that like you know maybe we shouldn't be subsidizing this thing. And I know there are a lot of jobs in that industry. But couldn't we then put the subsidies into moving those people over into jobs in a new industry that's not so destructive? I'm with you, and I and I hear where you're coming from, and there are parallels abound to the entertainment industry and the film world, film itself. I mean, but here's what I'll just say, and I'm not like obviously, this isn't news to anyone, um, but nostalgia is a hell of a drug, man, and. Anything that feels familiar, contained, part of the the past, the story, the narrative, the whatever. I mean, look, I love celluloid. I love yeah. film. I want to see films projected on film, shot on film. In and a movie I, theater. In a movie theater. And I have come to accept that... I mean, it's a mission. Like, I want to champion and I want people to keep using it. I want filmmakers to know they should use it. I've spoken with Kodak about this. There's stuff we'll do on No Film School and have done about it. It's become less viable in a lot of ways. And just like a lot of things, the industry around it has shrunk. I think that it, it's logical to say, go where the opportunity, the new opportunity is and be excited. But there's a lot of emotion tied up in the way things were. And we even tell ourselves they were better when they maybe weren't. But I do think that this is a real opportunity to look at a lot of the things about the film business model, like, you know, the distribution window. How long is it in theaters before it's in home? I think that's something that's going to change a lot out of this. I really hope we walk out of this with eight-hour days on set just becoming the norm for at least a couple of years. Because, you know, it just creeps up slowly where 12-hour days became the norm. But, like, eight-hour days would be great. I keep thinking from the DIY like super indie perspective of like without 12 hour days, I wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the things, the few things I've done. So like, like I think that I agree with you. Eight hour days should be the norm. And, and yet just like having to pay a person to be on set to hand out gloves and masks, I can see a lot of these things really impeding on the ability to, you know, shoot a feature in three weeks. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for under a hundred K or whatever, like, which is well, sure. But yeah. like, that's a different animal, right? Like those should be the exceptions. But what, what happens is those are the exceptions on little indie shoots. And then the big studios are like, Oh, you'll, you'll do 12 hours on a little indie shoot. Well then you'll do 12 hours of the big shoot and we'll just pay you the overtime. So I know, I know. I want to close us out by saying this is not meant to be insensitive to a large a large number of folks who've lost their jobs, a large number of folks who've been diagnosed with this. I don't want it to say that we're taking advantage of of a pandemic that is wreaking havoc and trauma yeah. across the country. I, I want to make sure that I name that. I, I don't mean it to say like, oh, it's now the time to change everything because we have an opportunity to do so. That sounds like business speak in a place that really this is unprecedented. I just want to say... Yeah. I, I'm, and I'm sensitive to that. So yeah, no, I, I don't want that to come across as that was a great time to change everything because things are, are crazy and things like this is real. Things are, this is Trump, this is real trauma on happening on the multiple levels. And we're seeing all sorts of this, you know, the fallouts from this. And it just so happens that everything is paused. So here we are. 
like, thank you for flagging that. I really appreciate it. I totally agree. It's also funny. Uh, it's also important to talk about that in terms of the decision Netflix is making to restart production. Every individual industry, every individual company is going to make a decision about re- when to restart production. But there is there is the risk of death in this decision for production to go back to work. So on one side, people are desperate to go back to work. And in all the groups I'm on, everybody's like, I can't wait to get production going again. I'm very eager for it. But like, this is a deadly disease. All of the projections are that we're nowhere near the end of it. And there is the risk of, you know, restarting a production and that leading to an outbreak that might not have happened otherwise. Now, you you might never know. It might happen after the production wraps and you might, you know, like it might not be traced back to that production. But this is something that I hope every executive is weighing. I'm sure every executive is weighing in some point. And it is a it is a weighty decision for any anybody restarting anytime soon. There is a lot to weigh there. And now you have to transition from that. Well, I can transition from that to the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. So perfect. Well I mean, we're all looking for content that we can distract ourselves with from, you know, the the world we live in. Um, and I've been enjoying Killing Eve with my wife and sports fans. Nice. Although I'm I'm not a sports fan, but I am a '90s Chicago Bulls fan because I'm a human being. Um, there's <laughs> a, otherwise, it would be like hating the Beatles. <laughs> it would just be like hating being alive. Like I also grew up in rural Illinois, so like the Bulls meant some the Bulls oh, and the right. Bears, and yes. yeah. So there's a documentary out right now produced by Michael Jordan's production company about the last season of the Chicago uh, that he, uh, that he played with the, the last of the peak seasons of the bulls, the 97, 98 season. Right. And 10 part series. The reason why there was an article about it on no film school this week. And the reason why a lot of people are talking about it in this week in particular, it's six weeks out of 10 is that, um, uh, Ken Burns, who, if you don't know Ken Burns, you, you, you've missed out on a massive, portion you, of sort of mainstream documentary. If you don't know Ken Burns, you certainly know some of his style because it's been integrated into the culture to the degree where it's like... Uh, it's a know, final it's a, cut transition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The Ken Burns effect. <laughs> there you go. Thank you for thank you for articulating me. <laughs> What's amazing about Ken Burns, though, is that he did all of those effects practically back in the 70s. Like, he started that style of like the long, slow drift in on the photograph you know, the like thing you see parodied in every episode of Family Guy where it's like a Civil War photo that slowly drifts in and you hear a voiceover that's reading from letters. That's Ken Burns. Um, but what's amazing is like it's so easy to do that digitally, but doing that photochemically, like he had to like he worked with these elaborate rigs in the 70s and these physical photos and like stop motion drift in to have these perfect you know, so like he did the hard way and then digital technology came along and it's like, oh, I just do it with a button now. He gave a um i don't know if throwing shade is the appropriate term but i'm going to call it throwing shade cuz why not he threw some shade at the michael jordan documentary it's actually not throwing shade cuz it's not subtle i think shade needs to be subtle he just flat out said he was like i'm not interested in that because it was produced by michael jordan and a and a doc on michael jordan produced by michael jordan is not history or journalism shots fired i think instead of throwing shade that's a shots fired right Basketball shots fired or just normal <laughs> shots fired? And what's interesting about this and the reason why I wanted to talk about it on the podcast today is I actually wanted to talk about it in terms of a specific interesting thing, which is that I don't actually think that the real drama of this conflict of interest, because there's a conflict of interest there, if if it's pretending to be documentary 
or history or journalism. If it's just publicity, that's fine. Like you can make a doc publicizing yourself. Why not? You're the greatest of all time. You can do that. But if it's trying to pretend that it's journalistic or, or, uh, historical documentary, that's a little different, but I actually think the interesting story here is that the thing we forget about documentaries is, you know, like for instance, in a narrative film, you can reasonably assume the director has seen all the footage. But in a documentary, so much is shot. And even this, this is like, it's from the 90s, so they weren't shooting as much then. But it was still, the, the director probably saw all the footage. But on a lot of documentaries, so much is shot that like only the assistant editor ever sees. Because they're doing cut downs and selects or paper edits where they're taking notes from set and and finding moments from that. And then showing that to the producers and showing that to the director. That conflict of interest actually becomes kind of a big deal because at every level, it's the editors and assistant editors and story producers. And it's all sorts of people who are aware where their checks are getting cut that are all making decisions about what's even making it to the director. So what's interesting about this is that like, you know, you might say to yourself, well, I'm a director, I'm independent. I'm going to actually put a lot of work into making sure I tell an honest and true story that shows, you know, even the darkness of the person who's paying for the documentary, but it's not just about individual decisions. I don't think this is shots fired at the individual director. I think it's shots fired at the situation where like, because so many people are making decisions. And if you're the, you know, if you're in your first year in the industry and you're an assistant editor on a project and you find unflattering footage, are you going to put that in the selects reel that's then going to go to MJ to look at and decide? Like, there's all this, like, there's like a billion subtle ways where the setup leads to a potential conflict of interest. And that's what I thought was interesting about this. What I was going to say is so there's the famous quote history is written by the victors. And I feel like I've been thinking even before Ken Burns said this and I was watching this doc, which I really enjoy because I love basketball. I love the nineties basketball. I love the nostalgia of it. The music's great. Um, But Michael Jordan gets to tell this story because he won. This is his version of history. There are longstanding feuds covered in here. Um, He gets to decide who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. And of course he's Michael Jordan. So he was kind of always the good guy, but there are versions of things that maybe a more objective take might uh, give a little more weight to. Um, There are perspectives that perhaps aren't shared. And even in the way certain other historical figures within his world are framed seem to be often junior to him, supplementary. And again, that's that's part of who he is and the mythology of him. But this is, it's a puff piece. Um, and that, Michael Jordan doesn't need that. Um, but I think for Michael Jordan, that's the only, like, he just, so there's another story behind this that he greenlit the decision to go ahead and release the footage and start putting it together in during the celebration of LeBron James's recent um, huge upset championship in Cleveland, which was, you know, another one of these moments where people started saying, well, is this guy, this guy in this case being LeBron James, but there have been many better than the greatest Michael Jordan. And the thing about Michael Jordan is he's, he's synonymous with greatness. Like he, he transcended just what it means in the sport. He's a, he's a historical figure now. He's, he's a cultural thing. He's beyond the sport. But, and he was even then, but um, the fact that he greenlit this then and it came out was just another interesting Jordan competitive, like, 
I want to write the story. Don't forget about me. You know, there, there's so much to it that I think is worth discussing. And as soon as I saw Ken Burns say that, I was like, we need to cover it on No Film School because this is a filmmaking thing. He talks about it in terms of documentary filmmaking, but he also talks about it in, turn of jur- in terms of journalism. Documentaries are not journalism always. Um, we also wrote about on No Film School, Tiger King, which had another series of things that were like, is that perspective being fairly shown? And what's the agenda behind this? And most of this footage is coming from Joe Exotic. And is that why he's coming off a little bit more positively than Carol Baskin? So we did that as well. And I'm just feeling like there's a trend in documentary filmmaking that's leaning a little more towards reality TV or where, where you're just, you just know the producers have an agenda and a narrative. I'm not saying that's never the case in documentary filmmaking. It, it kind of always is. But the way you're taught to make a documentary is to, tr- is to try and be objective or be a fly on the wall. And I'm finding that these are th- amazingly well-crafted and entertaining, but something's not right. I I had a greater issue with the lower thirds in this documentary that listed President Barack Obama as Chicago <laughs> resident. They, and they fixed I that think, in the last the last episode. He was listed as President Barack Obama. But I, think I, they I, I don't it. think that was a mistake. I think they did that on purpose to show like his his influence across the board. Except if an editor came in and showed me that, I would I, I think I would be appalled. But that was a choice they made. So that's my only that's my only shot fired is the lower thirds, which is interesting. Yeah. The thing that I find fascinating about that choice too is if you know Michael Jordan, then you know that falls in line with a consistent pattern of behavior of like it, when it comes to the Michael Jordan story, you're just a Chicago, you're a fan. You're not President Obama. You're a fan of Michael Jordan. Like he in the last episode, he talks about some. He talks about him being godlike, which he kind of is, but it's it it feels like that being the producer of it changes obviously changes the whole thing. But yeah, I don't. I'm it's it's a fascinating thing for that reason. But I feel like there almost needs to be a documentary about the documentary. Okay, moving on. Up next, tech. News. So our first tech news story, actually a little bit of a smaller story, but I wanted to give a shout out to it because it's an important thing that I think a lot of people don't necessarily understand. And that is Frame.io. If you don't know Frame.io, it's a very popular work in progress review tool where you can put things up and have time coded notes and it integrates well with your editing platform where it shows up as markers and Frame.io is great. Uh, Wonderful, wonderful product. Um, I also blog for them. So full disclosure, but I, I've been using the product for many more years than I wrote articles for them. Um, and uh, they released a new transfer tool, which is allowing you to use their uploader to transfer large file structures to someone else. So this doesn't seem that interesting because you're like, well, file transfer, there's a lot of people doing that. We transfer in Dropbox and Google Drive and Massive. But what is interesting about it is that it's a dedicated media tool, which is something that like there are a lot of really expensive options for companies like Signiant 
and other companies like that. And then there's another company like called Massive, which does that, but they charge you not a subscription fee, they charge you by the gig. And then Frame.io is now doing it within their subscription model. And why that's important is um, when we think of file transfer and we think of speed, we're, we're always sort of evaluating speed based on every link in the chain. So there's your local Wi-Fi connecting to your home router, and there's your home router connecting to the internet, and then there's the internet server that's moving the media, and then the whole chain on the other end. And you want, you're want you only going to be as fast as the slowest link in that chain. And a lot of people assume that the slowest link in that chain is their home internet, because oftentimes home internet upload speeds are pretty slow. But if you've ever done any testing, you'll realize that a lot of times, the slowest link in that chain is not your home internet, it's actually your server. So like, you know, I love Dropbox. I use it every day. It's a wonderful tool. It's really great. But apps like Dropbox are actually really not optimized for media. And so I haven't tested the Frame.io tool yet, but like Massive, which is a competitor of Frame.io, I've tested their tool and I get five times faster speeds on sending media through Massive than I do through Dropbox. Now, Massive, you pay by the gig. I've sent like hundreds of gigabytes of dailies to clients with it. It's a useful tool for that, especially because since you're paying by the gig, you can just add it to the bill if you're working with a client. So it's really nicely sort of segmented like that. But it's nice to see that other people are appreciating the fact that like, oh, you really need your servers dedicated and optimized for media for speed. And now there's the subscription option if you prefer subscription or if you're already a Frame.io user for much faster delivery of dailies. This is a tool. The other reason I wanted to talk about it on the podcast is this is an example of something I think we're going to see more of in the next couple of weeks where this is something they've been working on that was, you know, every company always has sort of like a product pipeline or a product map of like, all right, we're working on getting this one ready to launch in June and this ready to launch whenever and this ready to launch whatever. This is something they were going to launch later in the year. And then my suspicion is they immediately sort of pivoted to putting all their energy into getting this to release now. And so now that we're eight weeks into the crisis, I think, you know, uh, companies have had time to work on products. And I think over the next couple months, we're going to start to see a lot of releases that were probably designed for fall or next year. But actually, now that the sort of market has changed, now that the needs of their users have changed, you're going to start to see companies uh, rolling out a variety of interesting products. So I wanted to flag uh, the Frame.io transfer tool because I think it is a neat little thing. And a lot of people forget that, you know, if you've got to send 200 gigs to someone, doing that on Google Drive or doing that on Dropbox is not always the most efficient way to do it. Uh, it also, it works as an app you install on your computer. And what's really nice about it is it, uh, it'll automatically restart again if it stops. So like you're doing an upload on your laptop, you close your laptop for the night because you forget you're doing an upload, you open it up in the morning, it'll keep going. Or if you just walk from your laptop room to room, your internet cuts out for some other reason, it's an interruptible upload and download process. It's just nice that all of those features are sort of wrapped up into one place. One of the features I'm excited about, there are a couple that were also listed, is the addition of being able to upload a watermark to your Ooh. files, which is great. Uh, yes, I did see that. As a freelancer, it's sometimes strategic to upload your watermark, particularly if you haven't been paid yet, right? So it's one way to say like, hey, we're waiting for payment, here's a watermarked, and I'll remove it when it's paid or whatever your situation might be. Whatever the nice. situation might be in terms of uploading a watermark, you can now do it apparently in, in frame.io itself, which is cool. That's a good pro tip to, to weave in there, though, folks. Um, I think it's a really cool feature. I love that Frame was kind of looking around to see what how folks were using it for review and what the flags were. I have never used it on a phone. I know that I don't believe they have Android support yet still, and that's been probably the only 
piece of feedback that I've seen floating around in terms of this release so that there still isn't one for Android phones. But then again, I don't have any clients that have ever reviewed something like this on a phone. So here we are. Yeah, I'm really hoping that my clients do not review things on a phone. Uh, for me, I just like the native um, iPad Pro support because at least I know. Another thing a lot of people forget, one of the reasons why people, this isn't about Frame.io's current release, but in general, a lot of people forget that even different browsers look differently. Like every browser has its own color engine. So if I send you a Vimeo link, every, it, the color is going to look different in every browser. One of the nice things about a native app, especially a native app, since most like the iPad Pro is very common, I know if they're looking at it in a native app in Frame.io, it's going to look the same as it looks in other times they're looking at it in Frame.io on the iPad. So that's the only time I'm excited about that. Because, you know, when you send Vimeo links, or even if you send a Frame.io link and people open it in Safari versus open it in Chrome versus open it in Firefox, the color is different and that drives me nuts. The other tech news this week is that Apple has rolled out a new 13-inch MacBook Pro. Actually dancing over here. Sorry, continue. <laughs> so I usually don't talk about the 13-inch uh, releases. I'm always You're always going to hear me giving thoughts on the 16-inch release because I always have opinions on the 16-inch release. But I almost always say nothing about the 13-inch, and I always try and talk filmmakers out of buying the 13-inch because the big difference, there's a lot of differences. I mean, there's three inches of difference, if nothing else, but it's and th it's usually $1,000 different in price. But the... Um, the 13-inch only has one graphics card, and it's not even a real graphics card. It's what we call integrated graphics. It's where the graphics are built into the processor. And the 16-inch MacBook Pro um, has two graphics cards. It has an integrated graphics card built into the processor, but it also has a separate graphics card. And um, now it doesn't always use both. When you're on battery power only, it tends to throttle and not use the full graphics card as much. But if you're plugged into the wall, it'll use those two graphics cards. So if you're a filmmaker, you you want all that extra graphics power because you want to be able to use DaVinci Resolve, which uses a lot of graphics power, or Final Cut Pro 10, or um, Adobe Premiere, or Adobe Media Composer. And they all are really graphics intensive or Adobe After Effects. They all really want a lot of graphics horsepower. So I always, whenever filmmakers ask me what to get, I always say the 16 inch MacBook Pro, don't worry about the 13 inch. Despite my advice, 80% of my students have the 13 inch. And so uh, it is something that I've been trying to pay attention more to the capabilities of. And this release for the 13 inch is actually kind of exciting and might have some interesting options for filmmakers because it's the newest generation of Intel integrated graphics. And it's capable of driving their new 6K display. And one of the ways you can really sort of get a handle on, like there's all sorts of memory, like measurements of graphics cards power, like compute cores and um, VRAM and all sorts of stuff. But one way you can also sort of tell is like some laptops will run a 4K monitor, some, can, some won't. This is a 13-inch MacBook Pro and it's capable of running a 6K HDR monitor, which is a tremendous amount of graphics power to be packing into a 13 inch MacBook Pro. So I'm really excited to test it and get my hands on it and play around with it and see exactly like, what's it like running Resolve on a 13 inch MacBook Pro? Usually it really struggles because Resolve really likes GPU power and it needs that. But apparently this new 10th generation Intel integrated graphics is something that we're, they are pushing. Like in their press materials, they were talking about like render times and Final Cut Pro title sequences and stuff like that. It's also a 13 inch that has 32 gigs of RAM optional, which is 
a whole lot of RAM and a laptop. Um, and it's, you know, it's still with a 16 inch, you can get an eight core. You can only get a four core in the 13 inch. But other than that, and then of course the other big news is the, the butterfly keyboard, everybody hated is gone and we were yes. back to scissor keyboards and, uh, the scissor keyboard is so much nicer than the butterfly keyboard. And it is great to be back. So you're a 13 inch fan, Michelle. I was waiting for this update before I would become a 13 inch fan. My summary was something like hello graphics and goodbye butterfly keyboard. When I would type with this, I have a 13 inch MacBook Pro that's not for video editing, that's for kind of everyday life and all this stuff. And when I type with it, people thought, you know that scene in Up in the Air where she types angrily on the airplane and everyone's like, what's wrong? And she's like a type with passion or whatever the line is. That's what it felt like I was typing with all the time, even when I was trying to be quiet. Personally, I am in a spot where I'm trying to maximize what I can do on a you know traveling machine, things I can bring to set or I could bring to a job. And it doesn't break my back to do so. <laughs> and I'm curious if this will fit the bill. For the first time ever, I think a 13-inch might be powerful enough. Can I stop recommending only the 16? Because that's my big curiosity is, is is it enough? Or do we still have to push for the 16? I'm still going to continually get the 16, but I'm also like a big dude with a big backpack. But I understand not everybody likes the big laptop. All right, deep cuts. I'm going to start with a little movie called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Nice. I feel like this generation, I don't hear this mentioned as much as people used to talk about it. And I feel like I wanted to include it in deep cuts because I feel like it's been a little bit forgotten. It's been boiled down into like the Phoebe Cates meme of like, you know, her getting out of the pool and then it like flashes into something else in the meme. And people forget that like, it's actually a really good movie with great performances uh, a young Sean Penn giving like one of the performances as a young Sean Penn that really hinted at his potential. And also I love Nicolas Cage. Moonstruck is a top five movie for me. Like I'm a big, I think Nicolas Cage is a good actor and also a magic movie star, which doesn't always involve good acting. But I feel like because of the memification of Nicolas Cage, people forget that in some of his early performances, he wasn't always so big. Like my favorite Nicolas Cage's performance, like Con Air and Moonstruck, his performances are amazing, but they're like operatic. And uh, I just wanted to give a shout out to early Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You know, it's an Amy Heckerling movie. Amy Heckerling then went on to do, you know, the Look Who's Talking franchise and a bunch of interesting stuff. But it's sort of this like magic movie that like launched a lot of interesting careers and into a lot of interesting places. But yet I feel like just doesn't get talked about as much as maybe other movies from that same time period. So I just wanted to shout out Fast Times. I like that you shouted that out. The teen movie, the coming of age teen movie, really had a heyday in the 1980s. Um, I feel like it has had iterations since the invention of the teenager, which I feel like is like the 50s sort of, or the modern idea of a teenager. But um, yeah, we recently did, I did an interview on on the podcast, the No Film School podcast, with the writer and director of the Valley Girl remake, which is a musical. And we talked a lot about the original, the impact the original had on them and how they chased doing this remake in this way. And it took them a long time. My deep cut is going to be a movie called The Edge, which stars Alec Baldwin, 
and Anthony Hopkins. And it was written by David Mamet. And it is from the 1990s. And it is, I feel like it really is a deep cut because I don't think people know about it or seek it out. It is a tight little movie and it's excellent. It's actually not little, it's fairly large scope wise, but it's such a good movie. It's like a Hemingway style survival like uh, story. And it's, uh, it's just about these two guys who basically get stranded in the forest. But it's a great example of excellent screenwriting. And when I saw it for the first time, it led me to get really into David Mamet's idea. David Mamet's a little out there, um, but really into his ideas about what makes a good movie, like how to write a good screenplay, how to direct a movie. He has some really cool, succinct, Hemingway-esque ideas about how to approach it. Um, he's obviously legendary in the world of writing theater, um, but his his this screenplay is just really good and he and it's a great movie and Hopkins and Baldwin are great and it's a it's a great movie I love it and I guarantee you you will not be disappointed if you watch it it's another one I've recommended to people over the years no one has ever come back dissatisfied my deep cut is free to be you and me and here's why so I've been watching Mrs America on who on FX on Hulu and at the the last episode it ends by showing a little bit of Marlo Thomas's Free to Be You and Me. And unless you grew up and know that special or watched it live in the 70s, you may not know what they're referencing. This is where my short story begins. I used to work for Marlo Thomas. That was my first job in New York City. And wow. so I know, yeah. And I've seen Free to Be You, therefore I've seen Free to Be You and Me. So for me, watching this come full circle where I understand the significance of that television special when it came out, it's mentioned in Mrs. America because Gloria Steinem was a producer on Free to Be You and Me. And so they talk about it and they show the opening scene to it in Mrs. America. And I had the opportunity to show my mom, who was around and alive in the 70s, but didn't really know Free to Be You and Me, what that meant. So we went and watched Free to Be You and Me after watching Mrs. America. So if you have no idea what Free to Be You and Me is, or you didn't get your hands on the hot pink record vinyl, uh, which they re-released, I think, two years ago, go check it out. It was made because Marlo Thomas was looking for, at the time, I believe, a book for her niece. And all of the literature out there was princesses and things that she didn't really feel were strong messages for her for her niece. There weren't these great stories about being who you are. And so she went forth and made uh, this special. And so that's how this came into existence. So if, you, if, if this is new to you or if you've heard of it before but kind of don't know what it is or you saw the show and you're wondering what this was – read up on Free to Be You and Me or listen to some of the songs. Michael Jackson is in it, Diana Ross is in it. There's all these big names that came into Alan Alda's in it. Um, it's great. Mel Brooks, it's great. It's such a flashback <laughs> for me. I'm not old enough that I was a child when it first was released. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that when I was a child, it was in my parents' house and my parents played it and I was familiar with it. So it's just like I'm having like a weird uh, Proustian sense reflection here because I'm remembering that record and that song and all that stuff. And yeah, that, uh, that is, it was way, way, way ahead of its time. Um, we're finally, I feel like seeing 
the current generation start to like live the truth that was was embedded in that in the messaging there but it's uh it's a really cool thing all right, so it's time to wrap this up. Let's plug our pluggables. So I'm Charles Hain. I'm on the Twitter and the Instagram at Charles Hain, uh, C-H-A-R-L-E-S-H-A-I-N-E. And uh, the current thing I'm talking about is my show, Salty Pirate. It's on Ficto and it's on Vimeo and it's coming out on Amazon Prime. And you can learn more about it at saltypirate.tv or follow us on Instagram. This is Michelle De La Torre. You can find me on the socials at Twitter, on Twitter, on Instagram at mdelator, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Thanks for letting me plug for you, be you and me. Going to give a, a short and small thank you to Marla Thomas and her team, who I worked for very my very first job in New York City, pretty much. So thank you. And you never know how these things will come back around. And maybe you'll suggest something you worked on on a deep cut sometime in the future. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Um, you can find all the content we've discussed today and more at nofilmschool.com. Find us on Facebook, our No Film School Facebook page, Twitter at No Film School. Um, please like and subscribe and rate the podcast. And uh, I'm excited because we posted and recorded an interview I did with um, an old friend of mine, Justin Roiland, who's the co-creator of Rick and Morty, but he also has a new show, um, Solar Opposites coming out May 8th. So listen to that. It's weird. Um, it's silly, but it's fun. Uh, we had a good time and uh, it's, you know, it's it's Justin Roiland. So that's, you're going to get, it's as advertised. Um, but we have a lot of cool stuff coming up on the podcast and on the website. Please also, of course, check out the ebook, How to Write a Screenplay During Quarantine um, and sign up for our newsletter. That's also on nofilmschool.com. Thanks so much.